Welcome to Inside Out with Chris and Katie. These conversations are here to activate, stretch, and take you to your edges. This is your invitation to ditch the comparison and step forward with congruence and commitment to the life you want to live. Come play in our world and our minds as we navigate our 30s on totally different timelines. Welcome back to Inside Out with Chris and Katie. We are very, very excited to have the most wonderful man here with us today. Duncan, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to join you too. Oh, so great. And Katie, I'll let you take the lead on this. First question. (laughs) (laughs) Straight into it. Um, Well, yes. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode. And the first episode that we are like co-hosting and we have the beautiful Duncan as our guest. And so I'm just going to say it, Chris, like fucking bear with us, you know, like like learning, steep learning curve straight into it. Um, But I'm excited. I think, well, I'm keen to kind of share, I guess, why we wanted to get Duncan on first and then we'll throw, we'll throw to you, Duncan, so that you can kind of introduce yourself. However, Chris and I met Duncan through training that we've done um, in regards to coaching and the NLP stuff that the listeners obviously have a, a pretty good grip on. Um, and I just like, I love that like first impressions and then that like journey through. And it's like that initial first impression from, from, from my perspective, like my projection onto you, Duncan was this, like, I was like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, I'm weirdly like want to go and like talk to you and like want to gravitate towards you. And there was like this like weird, like hesitation. And I think when I think about my life and I know we'll get into it in the episode, I actually in my life hadn't been around that like grounded masculine energy so much. So whilst it felt, and it's like a paradox, right? Which everybody knows I love a paradox. It's like, it was this like drawing of like magnetism and like, I feel really safe. And also it's so different that I feel unsafe because it's, there's a level of uncertainty for me personally. And then I, I just like, I fucking love you. And I know like we went into trance together so much um, in regards to hypno and just had the most hilarious time. Um, So yeah, I think for those listening, like what you can expect from this episode is to hear from Duncan, who is this beautiful masculine energy and he's had a fucking wild life. So I'm just so excited. So I think, yeah, we'll throw to you, Duncan, give us a brief kind of intro. Like, what are you doing now? How did you get to where you are? And we'll kind of jump in with questions as we go and we'll just flow with it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thanks, uh, Katie, for that intro. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, those trance sessions in uh, training, NLP training, I don't think I'll ever forget. <laughs> uh, they're funny times. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm the CEO and founder of um, Brothers Keeper. <clears throat> um, I'm also a residential youth worker um, and also a coach, like NLP and shadow work coach um wow how did i get here jesus it's uh, been a journey um a really big journey so i guess start from the start really um i grew up in sydney northwestern suburbs of sydney um you know i grew up in a, a all things considered a good home uh due to you know my parents um, having some pretty full-on issues conceiving children. My older sister was stillborn. Then there was me and my, my younger sister died of cot death at six months old. So I was about four, I think. I can't really remember. I blocked out the first seven years of my life due to that trauma. 
I have a feeling that I either found my sister and alerted my mother or I was beside my mum or close to mum when she, you know, found my sister. So, yeah, as you could imagine, it was it would have been a pretty full-on chaotic experience, trauma to be, you know, to experience, especially at that age. Um, yeah, we moved from that house, you know, stayed you know, you know, not too far away. We moved to another suburb, not too far away from there, and um, grew up there. Um, changed schools a few times just due to issues with um having too many teachers change over in one year. Um, I was the only child in my family, and then just due to you know my mum being an only child, I was the only grandchild in my family. So there was a fair bit of pressure put on me to be all of the things I suppose you know um got into playing sports at a young age schooling really wasn't my thing um I was more involved in sport which was lucky for me because it became an outlet for my anger and my emotional states that I would that I'd go through um especially being young and not being able to process that um you know my parents were pretty uh obviously due to all of that my parents were pretty withdrawn um pretty disconnected uh emotionally so yeah I guess in you know some ways I grew up feeling like I was you know grew up alone grew up on my own so yeah went through that then got sent off to a high school got sent off to a private school in Sydney Newington College which is pretty well known down there <laughs> And, um, yeah, coming from a working class into a, like a rich school, I still went through, oh, my, the story I had in my head, and I'm sure you'll understand this is a story I had in my head then that I didn't really fit in. You know, I was like a working class kid in a rich school. Um, I've since connect, reconnected with some of the guys I went to high school with and their version of the story compared to what I had of my story running in my head, it was just really completely different, you know, like they said, you know, I went off the radar for like oh, nearly 30 years, I guess, for them um, coming up to our 30 year reunion um, this year. So I've just really connect, reconnected with some of them. And yeah, they said, oh, wow, you know, what have you been up to? You know, we were such good mates in school and then you just sort of disappeared. And I was like, wow, I didn't, I mean, there was one one guy in particular I had really good mateship with, but um, other guys I felt really disconnected with, you know. <clears throat> and once again, as I said, that was obviously the story that I had running in my head. Mm -hmm. um, was, yes, through high school, like, once again, high achiever in sports, um, really pushed myself hard, probably too hard to the point of um, burnout. By the time I finished high school with sport, um, got my results, uh, my HSC results, um, and not that I ever wanted to go to uni, but there was no way I was going to uni, um, which my father wasn't really impressed with, um, which continued on my issues. But I guess actually I'll go back. Before that, um, I think it was yeah around fifteen. I had my first uh, first relationship, like real girlfriend which um, was my first sexual relationship. Um, and that ended with her cheating on me, which sent me into a, a deep dive, um, very deep, dark um, hole, uh, depression and suicidal ideology. 
at the age of 15 that went on for about you know a good six month period you know um and there's something i remember quite well that i've spoken about before is um when i came out of that out the other side of that you know my father said to me at one stage he said oh you know i could see you're really struggling there and it's good to see you're all good now and it's just like that back then at 15 years old i just went like what the fuck you saw where i was and you just let me ride through it um and in saying that you know like i've all the work that I've done, I've come to terms with and come to peace with the fact that, you know, due to his conditioning and his father not being around and all of the things, you know, due to him, my my grandfather was a pilot, so he was hardly ever around, but he was doing the 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 old school provider, you know, provide for the family, create a legacy for the family, you know, do all the things, but wasn't there to connect with his kids you know, uh, emotionally or on any healthy emotional and mental level, I guess. <clears throat> so then that obviously just got passed down, you know, down the line as it does. And um, so, yeah, I was pretty disconnected from my parents, in especially at that age, especially, you know, during teenage years, which a lot of teenagers feel and, Consequently, I've gone through that with both my older daughters, who are one's 18 and <clears throat> the other one's 14. So I'm going through that stage with my second daughter now, which is interesting, <laughs> an interesting time. But yeah, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, so that happened and yeah, played out, finished high school and then just wanted to get out and work. I just couldn't get out of school quick enough to get a job. Um, ended up working in a pub. And worked with uh, a woman who was uh, the wife of a gang member, uh, a bikey gang member. And um, we got on pretty well, um, obviously. And then, you know, when we finished work on a Friday night, we'd sit down and have staffies, like a few drinks together. And then uh, then I met him. Uh, he, he used to come into the pub every now and then and pick her up on Friday nights um, after his meeting. And, um, yeah, next thing I, I, I would, I mean, I'd already had my drug addiction started like, uh, 15, or you started smoking pot when I went into depression, I got introduced to that by one of the guys I went to high school with, which, you know, just became my escape. And then I was like getting stoned before school, getting stoned after school, um, just to feel anything other than the dark hole, hole I was in, you know? <clears throat> so yeah, then the next thing, you know, I'm out uh, at a bike show being introduced to speed. So, you know, having already been pretty heavily drinking, working in a pub and smoking pot, um, still having mental health issues, you know, I went from, you know, sort of living here and then having speed to just bang straight away. So then it was like, wow. And then going back to an, uh, an after party club at the clubhouse, which was just another um a whole new different environment um that I got introduced to and it was just like all the bright lights type thing um yeah so I hung around for a couple of years there you know going out to the the meetings every week and driving around and going to bike shows and all sorts of things like getting more and more entrenched into it um what I know now is from that once again from the work I've done and I just spoke to this sort of recently, um, I was groomed, you know, I was manipulated. <clears throat> um, 
you know, I was told all the stories of how it was, you know, family, brotherhood, this, that, and the other, because I was so disconnected from my parents uh, and what family I did have, it felt like, fuck, this is really what I want, you know, like my what I saw was one member take on another member's kids after he died in a bike accident and um, he's the guy, the guy who died, his wife died of cancer six months before that. So another member took on his kids. <clears throat> That's was the story that I was told, you know, and I thought and saw all that and thought, fuck, yeah, that's that's what I want, you know. Like if I want to have kids at some stage and if something happens to me at some stage, I want to have the same sort of people with the same ideas and ideals as what I have, you know, raise my kids rather than the the, the feelings and my perspective on how my parents were raised, raised me, you know what I mean? Like the, the rebellious or the, the pain point of what I was feeling towards my parents at that stage, you know? So, um, yeah, I became more and more entrenched into that life. Um, I ended up yeah getting a bike and then, um, doing, you know, my prospect or, or nominee, I got nominated by a member, uh, by one of the members to, to do my time which was 12 months um so yeah I just became more and more addicted to drugs and you know it wasn't uncommon for me to be awake for three or four maybe five days of most weeks um in that time period uh running around doing all things you know being behind the bar at parties you know doing the barbecue at meetings doing you know running around for members and so on and so forth already started to see by that stage a fair bit of violence um but i was already you know addicted to the adrenaline addicted to the the dopamine hits from it the drugs um yeah so it became pretty full-on by that stage and then uh, i got my patch uh i was 23 when i got my patch so i was one of the youngest out of the whole club to to have my patch at that age um around that time i met um and and my partner which was my future future partner the the mother of my girls i met her there in you know in that scene as well um you know she had a i found out later she had a massive amount of childhood trauma um and so yeah we've basically just trauma bonded as i'm sure you you understand and then uh, went through that life. We were together for 16 years. Um, so, yeah, we went through all of that together. Um, so, yeah, saw all the red flags, but I was so, had, I guess, so much tunnel vision, stubbornness, ego, that this is where I'm going. I'm going this way regardless. Like, nothing is going to stop me. Um and for, I guess, you know, different reasons, that was the journey, that was my journey that I was headed down. So, yeah, um, once again, saw heaps more violence um, and realised after I got my patch that um, that lifestyle was a lot, lot more treacherous than what it had been, what I'd been told. If we weren't at war with another club, we were at war within ourselves, you know, guys were setting up got other guys within the club due to drug debts and stuff like that and you know having them bashed and thrown out and taking their bikes and cars and all sorts of stuff so yeah by the time I'd really got in there my generation had really 
um, I guess, changed the scene from the old, really old school where it was family orientated and, and a brotherhood um, to really being focused around drugs and money and, and power and egos really by that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, all of that culminated in um, me being shot um, in a gang war in 2005. Um, yeah, I got shot in the back. The bullet went in my in my back and out my chest. Uh, half a centimetre away from my heart. Uh, the trajectory of the bullet should have um, blown out my, blown my heart actually out of my chest. Um, but when it hit my back and my jacket, it straightened up and and went in between my ribs in the front and back of my chest. And yeah, it gave me a punctured lung and uh, I managed to stay on the bike at the time and rode the bike another kilometre up the road to my vice president's house and, and basically died in the gutter. Uh, paramedics brought me back and uh, next thing I sort of came to in ICU at Westmead Hospital, um, obviously in shock and up dosed up to the eyeballs with, um, you know, morphine. So let's go back one second, Duncan. You yeah. on your bike, shot yeah. through the back and rode to where you needed to be. Like yeah. dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we... We we rode past. Uh, we were on a. We were heading to a memorial run, so we were going to my vice president's place to meet up, and we were already at war. So the 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 directive had come that we weren't uh, allowed to ride on our own. So we had to ride in you know a group of at least two or three. So my sergeant came down and picked me up from my house, and I'd been out the night before to a member's um, birthday party and was sort of fairly hungover from drugs and uh, alcohol and woke up that morning and actually woke up feeling really sick and in my guts, you know, my stomach. And, uh, you know, the little voice in the head was going, don't go, don't go, just tell them you're sick, you know, and I just, you know, like shut up and just do what you got to do. Um, but the, the little little voice in my head was saying the whole time, don't go, don't go, don't go. And anyway, we jumped on the bikes at my place, rode 45 minutes uh, across the other side of Sydney and turned up a street in, you know, in Blacktown by the time we were there. Went through a roundabout and as we were, sort of went through a roundabout, we changed like formation, you know, and my sergeant with a life member on the back of him ended up in front of me and we went past two parked cars. And just as we went past the parked car, something caught my eye and I looked in my side mirror, I uh, looked in my rear vision mirror and um, there was a guy coming out of the car. Um, and then the next thing I heard, the bang. Um, and then obviously blacked out and then came to and I was on the opposite side of the road, nearly in the gutter, uh, still on the bike. Luckily, it was, you know, reasonably early on a Saturday morning. So there was no cars coming the other way. Otherwise, yeah, I would have ended up in the front of a car or anyway. Um, yeah, I realized what had what had happened and ended up at that same stage going through another roundabout on the complete wrong side of the roundabout. Um, so yeah, due to being a security guard prior to that, um, I knew already knew first aid and all that sort of stuff. So I just knew that I had to try and compress the bleeding as much as I could. So changed down a couple of gears on the bike and put my hand on my chest, which I could feel a burning sensation there at the time. What I found out later was the bullet it was bullet was still sat just inside my shirt and my jacket. So I was pushing the the burning bullet against my chest and trying to stop the blood there. 
um, and kept riding up the up the road uh, another kilometer because I knew that I had to if I if I didn't get to the vice president's house there was a good chance I there was no way I was going to survive because I watched the guys do a, a u-turn in the car and one guy get out of the car um, as I was riding up the hill so they were waiting for me to drop and we'll see what happened so yeah I managed to get up up to the house did you ever know if the directive was for you specifically to be shot or was it just the gang just get anyone yeah it's interesting you asked that um I had a few issues with some guys in the club that I was in um who'd come across from another club a few years earlier and there was just this ongoing um tension and issues within that I found out later after I left the club that those guys actually went to high school with the guys who shot me. So it was interesting that they were sat there at that spot and, you know, coincidentally knowing that we would probably ride up that road to that direction. Mm. Um, in saying that, you know, is is was it a coincidence or is it just wrong place at the wrong time? <laughs> it's so fascinating to me. Um, Duncan and what like the burning question that I have is like this is something that like most people clearly huge generalization majority of the population do not ever experience mm. not only the like event of being shot right but like the whole like lifestyle that you were living and being in this really intense fight or flight mode in terms of that mm. heightened um, like stimulation like mm at every fucking moment, whether it's through the drugs and the alcohol or whether it's through, like you say, being at war with another club or at war within your club. It's like that whole, like holding that level of like sensitivity, even though some of it's negative, it's still like so heightened to the average person. And based on what you said earlier in regards to that, like the grooming and the the, the whole brotherhood mentality, when you woke up in that hospital, did you feel that? Like, was that there to hold you that brotherhood mentality that like, it's all right, Duncan, we're here. Like the, like, were here with you or did you feel a sense of isolation? Um, there, It's a combination of both, actually. Yeah. It was the guy who who was riding with me, my sergeant at the time. We were, um, you know, godparents to each other's kids. Like my daughter was, uh, what, four months old and we'd already planned for them to be godparents. They had older kids, so we'd already become godparents to his kids. So there was that close connection with him um, and he was there in the hospital um, with me for a part of it in ICU um, and actually tried to get me to calm down at one stage because I, you know, just due to shock and everything, and everything going on, I, I became quite volatile in ICU to one of the nurses. Um, so they moved me out of ICU pretty quick. Um, yeah initially yes i did feel supported um i you know soon after that i worked out it was all words um in the end that was basically the reason that i left one of the main reasons that i left what they said they would do they didn't do um they didn't follow through with anything and i basically just got told um to get over it uh after you know three or four months um the other part was uh, when I ended up in hospital again, sort of four weeks later, like I'll, I'll go back a bit. <clears throat> Even before I got shot, there was a few months earlier that we were in a situation. And what I mean, like before when we were at war, where there was issues with other men that had gone to jail for, for a very long time. 
and there was debts owed and guys weren't paying the debts. Um, so it turned into an, an issue and uh, we went into an, uh, one of our other clubhouses and, um, yeah, we were sorting out the issue, as I'm sure you can understand, and I could hear bullets whizzing past my head because they were bouncing off the concrete as people were being kneecapped. Um, so, yeah, it was for pretty much six years, it was just running on that heightened um, survival mode, I guess, yeah, you could say. Um, but, yeah, anyway, getting back to, to being moved out of ICU two days later, like I'd only been in hospital probably two or three days at, at the max by that stage. Um, I still had, was still obviously in a lot of shock. Um, felt I wasn't really safe in the hospital. So um, I got the nurses to pull the drainage hoses out of my chest and um, got up and walked out, signed myself out and walked out of the hospital um, without even letting them stitch me up, stitch the holes up in my chest. I'm a rib cage and even the bullet wound holes, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, spent the next couple of days driving around looking to get even um, and thankfully didn't find anyone. Otherwise, the rest of my story would probably be a lot different. Um, yeah, and so the next over the next couple of weeks was in and out of hospital um, due to issues or complications. And then, as I said, in around week four, um i went to lay down one afternoon at home and and the the pain in my chest was intense and i'd started to sweat by that stage i thought this really isn't good so then i drove myself you know probably 10 15 minutes up the road to st george hospital um i can't actually remember getting to the hospital or checking into the hospital um, the next thing i came to and i was in a pretty dimly lit room um, with a security guard there and uh, doctors or trainee doctors coming in, you know, every sort of 10 minutes checking my charts and asking me some questions and leaving. And at one stage I, I, I turned to the security guard and said, you know, what's going on? What's all this shit about, you know? And he said to me, he said, nobody can actually work out how you're still alive. Um, they've sent you for x-rays and basically uh, you're an anomaly. You no, know, the doctors just can't work it out. So they're trying to, you know, work out how you're still here um shortly after that the doctor walked in and said right yeah this is it i'm gonna cut you open and they cut me from just underneath my chest all the way around up uh sort of up towards the top of my shoulder blade um and he said we're just going to cut you open and if we have to i'm just going to start cutting out ribs um if it's that bad but they ended up draining three and a half liters of blood and fluid out of my lung cavity um and that was the the intense pain that i was having as all of that from the internal bleeding was coming across and starting to to collapse my other lung. Um, so yeah, so then spent. Um, I was ordered by the doctor um, at that time to that I would be at the hospital until he signed me out, and he'd give strict he'd given strict instructions to all the nurses and security guard officers um, that I wasn't to leave without his direct permission. Um, so by that stage too, after about four weeks and things, you know, playing out the way they did, I'd had, you know, also, uh, turned into a, during that time, had a, had a, a bit of a brawl with a few of the mem my own members, um, at a restaurant, um, over some issues at that time as well. So by the time four weeks came, it was just like, all right, fuck, I've just got to stop. Just got to do what I'm told. 
um, and uh, take the time to heal. But um, yeah, the big catalyst for me leaving was um, my partner at the time was bringing my daughter in at you know visitation, um, visiting hours every day. So you know, as I said, she was four months old and. Basically, what it was like was, uh, you know, do I want to continue down the path I'm going and, and you know, end up dead next time or end up in jail for a long time or do I want to be a part of my daughter growing up? And, um, yeah, my choice was, yeah, just what, that lifestyle wasn't anything as to what I'd been told it was in the first place and I'd done what I can to to keep it down you know, a different way as to what it was going. And in the end, it's like, is it really worth it? So, what a huge realization. And it's like when I just want to make this point clear to those people listening, it's like when you, when you hear this story, even like purely to this point, and I think this is really paramount. And I think we all kind of go in some way or another, we all go through what I'm about to explain. It's like when you were younger in school, it was like, this like people pleasing tendency, right. In terms of like wanting to be that, like the the athlete and wanting to like do the things and, and make your parents proud and, and feeling that external pressure from the perspective of, okay, like I'm their golden child. So I need to be their golden boy now. And then having that moment, that like dark moment of like realizing that even when you were being like that guy in inverted commas, your partner at the time cheating on you and realizing like, oh fuck, what is all of this for? Right. And then, then cascades that other spiral. And if we think about the paradox and that infinity loop, it's like you were stuck on that one end of like that people pleaser, that thing happened and it fucking threw you all the way to the other side. And it's like, all right, like fuck everything. I'm going to fully like surrender to this um, again, in inverted commas, this like darker side, right? Like this like rebellion and, and lean fully into that. And then that recognition that like, oh fuck, hang on, this actually isn't giving me everything either. And then now, and I'm assuming this is where the story will go. It's like coming back into that center point and being able to find resources from either, either side and go, okay, how do I, how do I mold these together and start this like ascension towards divinity, right? Which is what everybody's wanting and chasing. And you can call it source creation, God, the universe, whatever it is. It's like, we want to raise our, our vibration, raise that frequency and like utilize those resources to impact our life in a way that's going to not only be beneficial for us, but like you said, like beneficial for your little, like your little baby that's like, that's there and recognize like, okay, I've got all of this. And it's like that fucking ownership, right? It's like all of this stuff has like, and you said it early on, it's like, it's not what happens to you. It's how you perceive it. Like, so those people listening, it's like, okay, maybe you weren't in those huge people pleasing tendencies, or maybe you weren't like fucking shot. Like, literally through your fucking body however i would almost guarantee that like most people are spinning that same fucking paradox in one way or another it's just we all do it in our own way right and so if you're listening to this and you're in a position where you're like fuck i'm stuck on like either end know that you get to choose to move to the center but it's it's a choice right like you could have easily gone back into the club and been like okay this is just what i know now like i've just got to fucking stick it out and it is what it is but you had this moment of realization where you're like, actually something's got to shift here. Like I actually get to make this choice where I get to shift. So I just wanted to make that really clear for those listening. Yeah. Well, there's that. And there's, you know, uh, I hear what you're saying. The, the, and what from one of the se- a session that I have done, 
um, it was sort of explained to me that uh, when, you know, my that girlfriend cheated on me, she went out with, she hooked up with the bad boy. Um, mm. So in my subconscious, I went, okay, you want to you wanna see a bad boy? I'll show you what a bad boy looks like. So I yep. swung the pendulum to the other end and still played out, like you said, the people-pleasing part within me of going into that club life and doing all the things for them and still staying on that that far end of you know that dark side there as you explained um oh, but the issue is I didn't learn all my lessons um from that yes I made a choice to get out of the club for you know um you know for myself for my family my young family at the time um what I did was you know like a majority of men do I buried my head in work and spending time with my daughter on the weekends and um didn't didn't not so much recognize I didn't basically do anything about my mental health issues you know my my headspace was I'll just bury my head in work I'll keep pushing forward I'll keep providing I'll keep doing the things just keep moving forward moving forward moving forward and it'll all go away um as we now well know that doesn't work that way it's just we it's just another form of suppression whether it be you know from addictions drugs alcohol whatever you want to call it you know addiction to work you know whatever it is um so yeah I, I kept just moving forward and doing that um it packed up my family I left Sydney um through connections because I still was connected to some you know guy friends that were in other clubs um, I was still connected to um, my sergeant and his family, but I um, packed up my family and moved to Queensland um, through those connections, got a job in the mines. Um, and as I said, just, you know, buried my head in work um, rather than face off with my mental health issues or even deal with them on any level whatsoever. So, you know, dealing with severe depression and, you know, complex PTSD, um, I guess some anxiety on some levels as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it's super interesting because Katie and I have touched on this in past episodes. It's like first the feather, then the brick, then the truck, right? And it's yeah. like you've got the feather, the feather niggle, and then you got the brick. And then like I couldn't even like I'm not even sure that getting shot was the part that was the truck. I feel like getting shot. And then going back and looking for revenge and then getting like getting super sick and your lung collapsing or almost collapsing was that's where the truck came in and like knocked you flat on your ass and you had to restart again. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, as I said, it was like the realisation point of, you know, everything that I'd been told it was like um, was basically a lie. Um, I'd seen so many red flags along my journey already by that stage and I chose not to, I chose to ignore them or chose to, you know, due to ego and stubbornness, no, I'm going to take it back to the old ways and take it back to the way it should be. <clears throat> um, yeah, so, and it got me to where, where it got me to, you know. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, just keep burying my head in work and um, over the next few years I managed to, you know, get a mortgage and buy a house and, you know, start the that side of life and, you know, had the car and all of those types of things. But um, once again, wasn't dealing with my mental health issues. Um, my partner, due to me working away 
um, and dealing with the with by that stage I had another child, um, our second daughter, um, dealing with both the girls, you know, for five or seven days, you know, on her own while I was away at work, um, um, was taking a toll on her. Mm-hmm. And by that stage, we'd moved back to the Gold Coast um, just to be around people that we knew, which were basically, you know, retired members and um, people that were still sort of in that scene. Um, and so I spoke recently about it, you know, like somebody said to me, is like, how how did you, you know, not get away from it completely? I said, well, when it's that when you're so deep in that lifestyle, you, you create your whole identity around that. And to actually walk away from that, you completely strip everything you know about yourself away. And um, that's a, a big struggle that a, a lot of people can't can't deal with, um, especially leaving that lifestyle. Um, so, yeah, I spoke about it to a, a university professor about what some gang members would be experiencing and 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 going through leaving that lifestyle just a few years ago. Um, and by the end of the time I'd spoken, you know, as to what, you know, I had experienced and what I feel that they would be experiencing, the the professors had to get up and walk around the room and he was just like, fuck, no wonder that it's so hard to get out of and no wonder they're so, they're so stuck in that lifestyle. Um, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people, you know, in the general public don't really understand um what it takes to really step away from that lifestyle um and you know even i've got guys that i sit in circle with now and that i'm really good mates with they went through the army and it was their journey was extremely similar um so yeah getting away from those those types of lifestyles can be extremely extremely hard you know and after a certain amount of years it's it's what it's what i knew you know it's all i knew so you know, changing my lifestyle was basically going back to the start and relearning, you know, how to do life again, really. Um, so, yeah, it can be extremely difficult. Um, so, yeah, I got a job in the mines and was working there. Uh, I think I did sort of seven years in the mines, but um, the last three years I was back on drugs, su- suppressing, uh, basically suppressing what I wasn't willing to face off with you know, shadow behaviors, you know, mental and emotional issues. Um, so yeah, by that stage I was I was on ice, smoking ice, and then short soon after that I was back in the middle of a, a pretty full on drug syndicate, um, which involved, you know, people from both sides of the law, gangs again and, you know, dirty cops, uh, retired police, stuff like that. So yeah, it got pretty hectic again. And then I had my second truck i guess you could say <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah everything fell apart in 2014 i got made redundant from my mining job i lost my license due to points uh the week before that and before getting my redundancy package and um i went to debt collect and do some information finding and basically opened a can of worms um next thing you know i had police looking for me federal police looking for me because my partner had told him that um i disappeared and was you know being held hostage and tortured and stuff like that <clears throat> just due to our lack of communication over the phone due to the circumstance but um 
and you know just due to the situation that was playing out as well it was pretty hectic um so yeah basically that all my my life fell apart again all in 2014 um spent nine months unemployed four months living in a car in that time it sort of really hit home how bad i'd let things get and you know really taking and on taking ownership of it and also going to the 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 space of you know beating myself up over it um i ended up standing on a chair a couple of times with a rope around my neck um one weekend after i'd started drinking um basically it just all came out all at once um so yeah i couldn't do it um even though also leading up to, you know, for the last few years of my relationship with my partner, you know, driving out to work, um, you know, was envisaging, 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 I can't even say it. Anyway, driving in into in the front, into the front of a, 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 a semi-trailer going the other way or driving into a tree at 120, 40 k's an hour, you know. Um, so I was back in that real dark, deep depression, suicidal space for a couple of years there before all that played out as well. So, yeah, the drugs were definitely an escape. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I understand how easy it is for people to get um, hooked on ice. You know, like if for me, I was living at, at this level down here in depression and suicidal, you know, to tendencies and all that sort of stuff. And then smoked ice and you know next thing you know living up here and then after that i was just forever chasing the high which was which is what a lot of people experience on that um and understanding too that uh i watched in a documentary once that um you know when they smoke ice or inject it uh it releases a hundred times more endorphins into your brain than when you orgasm so you can imagine the effect that it has on somebody that's living down here on their, you know, at their absolute baseline, you know, to then go and take the take ice or whatever. And then the next thing, you know, the world seems amazing again and, and whatever else, but it 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 has its toll, it takes its toll. Mm-hmm. Um, which is where it ended up for me. Um yeah, so that was the catalyst to to really change my life. I think um, that's pretty it sort phenomenal of then that I was here for something something. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty phenomenal for those listening that like have no idea what a drug addiction feels like. Like I know like for myself, like drugs hasn't been something that's really been in my awareness at all in my 30 years. So it's like, however, I've known of people that have been in sticky situations with drugs or that have had a brother that has a drug addiction or their father has a drug addiction or, you know, like we... I would say that almost everybody knows somebody in that world. And I think like this conversation is so empowering to those people as well to have some form of like opening up their lens of awareness as to like what's going on in that person's, in that person's head. Because I think it's so fucking easy to sit on the sidelines and go, Oh, they just need to help themselves. Or like, why are they doing that? Like it's so easy to look at people in those positions of, of drug addiction and judge them right it's so fucking easy to do that when really when you can start to actually comprehend hang on there's layers to this there are always layers and like I know that like we all totally believe and get the whole concept of like people are not their behaviors right and like everybody's operating from a place of positive intent for a lot of people in that like deep like 
center of like, fuck, this is the only thing that's possibly going to pull me out of this. It's this or stepping off that chair. Mm. It fucking makes sense, you know? Like, so like even that information is so powerful. Yeah. Well, once again, you know, and it's another similar to what I was saying before. I'd created my identity in that lifestyle. And, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that for people in that lifestyle, it's they there's a there's a connection there with other people that are in that lifestyle. They get a connection. They're around people that they feel understand them or understand where they're at. Realistically, they're trauma bonding. But in in their head or what they're going through and what I was also going through was I feel connected with these people. So it's a it's a form of connection. You're creating another uh, an identity out of that whole lifestyle. Um, so once again, to remove yourself or as I did, remove myself from that, basically you're taking off all the masks, stripping it right, right back, you know. And the way I got out of it was I isolated myself from everybody and any anybody that had anything to do with that. Um, I threw away my phone. Um, I only I got another phone with and only put in some uh, emergency contact details of people just in case um, and went and lived in my car for four months on the other side of, you know, Brisbane to where I was living. Um, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was intermittent fasting, cold water therapy because we were just coming out of um, winter and all the showering in public amenities. So there was only cold water um, to any time. <laughs> Anytime I got a craving and fuck, it was cold. Anytime I was, um, had a craving or, you know, started thinking about it, I'd go out, walk, run. I got hold of a push bike. I'd go cycling. Yeah. Anything, anytime I had any sort of craving come on, I would just sort of basically, you know, exercise it out. Do you still have cravings? Uh, for ice, absolutely not. I've been clean. Eight years, I think, yeah, eight or nine years off ice. Um, so I had it once. I tried it again once after that. And as soon as I had it, and this has been my pattern throughout my life, you know, even with pot, like I, I'll go, I'll have a massive break from it and then I'll go back and try it one more time and it won't agree with me. Like for pot, I'd get paranoid or something like that. I just, and anxiety would kick in and just like, fuck, that's it. I know that's it for me. I tried ice one more time and it's just like, I hate this feeling. Like I really despise this feeling now and I am know that I'm 100% done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that's the journey journey for me. I was put in a, a situation one time. Um, we were at, uh, you know, at these people's places and they were talking, you know, their code, which always happens around people when they're talking around drugs. Um, and the next thing, we, I was sat at a table and I heard this this very distinct noise and it, it was a glass pipe being put on the table and I, could, I heard it. And it, when you've been in that scene for a long time, that that is, a, as I said, has a very distinct sound. You can't mistake that for any other sound. And so I, I turned around and, and it was right there next to my arm. My arm was on the table and it was right there. And um, I basically looked at the friend that I was with and I just just went, I'm out, I'm going. And I, I knew that I had to get up and get out of there just mm-hmm. straight away, like no questions. And I just, yeah, she said, what's up, what's up, what's up? And I just said, I'm going now, I'm leaving. I said, you can stay if you want, but I've got to go and I've got to go now. 
and we got into the lift and she, you know, she said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, oh, they're talking about getting on. And she put the pipe right next to my arm. And, the, the, you know, my friend turned around and said, fuck, I didn't even see it. And I said, yeah, I know. That's why I had to get out. So, <clears throat> yeah, there's there was that as well, you know. I guess the the knowing or the discipline to 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 know within me that had I have stayed there, I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have had the strength to refuse it and be in that in that in that scene or be in that space with that at that time. Um, you know, and some people don't make that choice and 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 fall back into it. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a brother who I have mentioned on the podcast before. Um, and I can't remember if I told you this, Duncan, but he's four years younger than me. And when I say like I we lost him. We lost him. Not like he's not dead. He's alive as recently as being on my doorstep only a few weeks ago. We, um, Katie and I, have discussed that one in depth. But um, all the shadows appearing, rearing their heads, right? And it's so interesting because for him, his gateway into the drug life was um, pot. And so for me, pot is the devil. Pot is horrific. And anyone that I like, I, if I smell it, I'm just like, who's that? They've got to get away. Like I can't do that. And it's so interesting because other adults that in my life that I love and have similar values to my own they're like pot's nothing what are you like it's not the worst thing in the world but for me I lost my physical brother from that gateway drug right and he's still gone I still don't have him in my life which is actually okay but it's interesting like for some it could be could be meth it could be at that level or it could just be as simple as pot and just noticing however like with me again I'm so heightened with with drugs there's no naivety there and with you sitting in that environment and you heard it you just you just knew exactly what it was at that moment if I'm out and about I just know I know everyone in the room and what they're doing (laughs) and it's like it's interesting once you've been around it and been in that world you are so um hyper aware of Mm -hmm. of the environment you're in and what you're putting yourself in yeah yeah absolutely and I was already in like what you were saying there like in my teenage years when I go to a pub I'd I'd be the one that would go and stand with my back to the wall and just sit there and observe, just watch everybody and just sit there and just have my drinks or whatever, be with sort of a group of friends, but I would just observe everywhere. So that that played out for me, especially during gang life and actually served me really well during gang life. Um, so, yeah, I... It depends on the individual. Like, you know, I have friends that smoke pot, you know, I mean, they're not stoned 24-7. They use it to go to sleep at night or or whatever. They're suffering from pretty chronic um, pain and, and illness and, and whatever else. Um, it comes, my my perspective is it comes from the, it comes down to the individual and why they're using it, whether they're going to use it to to escape or to suppress or to feel good or to feel fucking anything other than the depths or the darkness that they're feeling, mm. then yes, that can become a, an addiction because it's an escape. Whereas if somebody's, you know, can be using it for pain and, you know, all the studies that have been shown, the the the, the beneficial effects that, you know, you know, CBD oil has and, and all of those types of things, even psychedelics, you know, what they're doing these days with, you know, mental health. And, and I mean, uh, obviously that's under guided psychology, uh, psychological sessions and stuff like that, obviously. Um, but yeah, I feel that it comes down to the individual and why they're actually using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I totally, totally understand, you know, as soon as 
you're aware of something like that it's just like yeah i don't don't want to be around that it's uh it's a a, a response for you uh and that's 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 completely understandable you know i had that response you know like i'll you know i've worked in logan you know like once i changed and worked out what i was here for i worked as a, i've been working as a youth worker for the last uh eight years now nearly eight years um, and spent most of that time in in the Logan area in, in Queensland, um, which is renowned for, you know, the amount of people up there that are on ice. And I can, you know, pretty much, you know, pick it straight away. Um, so, yeah, I totally understand, you know, what you can, where you're coming from on that aspect. For any so what specifically... Sorry, Chris. You're all right, babe. We knew that would happen eventually. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just so, like, fascinated because now I'm like, I want to know, like, what got you into youth work? Was it that, okay, I want to stop people from going down the path that I have. I want to help people get off that path. I want to, like, I've got this level of being able to comprehend what they're going through. And so I want to, like, show them another way. Like, I, yeah, I want to know why. Yeah, yeah, well, it came to me that, um, you know, I guess my journey, the journey that I've been through is for a greater purpose. Um, so, yeah, I came up, or well, it came to me, um to create like farm programs um for young people to to get away from that lifestyle and 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 it's over the years it's evolved into you know uh, implementing farm programs into youth detention getting you know young people out of jail cells out onto to farms for you know a whole variety of different programs within that one umbrella program you know and healing and 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 positive outcomes um so yeah i started off you know the universe did its thing i started volunteering at a at a place um which is a social enterprise for youth and family services in at logan and within like a week or two the guy who was um you know like a mentor for young men um you know putting them through you know work getting them work ready um uh, doing maintenance and and lawn mowing and and all that sort of stuff for uh, emergency housing around the Logan area. Um, he actually got done DUI, so the the boss turned around and said, "Me, you want a job?" I said, "Yeah, for sure." So and that's where it started, and it's just evolved since then. Um, yeah, evolved to the point where uh, I've worked with Indigenous mob out of Bow Desert and in Logan, putting you know disengaged Indigenous youth through programs, um, supervising that, and got to the point where um, Task Force Maxima, which is the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang Police Task Force, um, reached out to me and contacted me and interviewed me about you know where I was and how I'd got to where I was and what I'd done. Um, so basically they headhunted me for a, a program, a pilot program they put together, um, to support, you know, men disassociating from gang life and supporting them back into sort of like mainstream society, really supporting them back into employment or some training and, um, mental health, um, you know, support and, and that type of thing. Um, and by that stage, I'd already, I'd already been involved in men's work, for a, a few years <clears throat> I'd come across that um after I sat in a meeting at the community uh, at the uh the organization I was working for community services organization um around domestic violence and I just split up with um my my son's mum at that stage and was going through a, a quite a, an extremely toxic 
um, you know, breakup, separation. Um, so, yeah, I looked into, you know, what services are out there for men around domestic violence and, and, and what there was out there. And there is fuck all, really. Um, the one program that I did look into that sort of took any interest in me, I had to sign off on a stat deck saying I was a perpetrator of domestic violence to actually engage in that service. Um, and for me personally, like like going down the road of looking to get custody orders for my son and all that sort of stuff, if I'd signed off on that and that had gotten out, like I would have there, you know, uh, it wouldn't have been in my favour. So <clears throat> system with domestic violence in terms of supporting men wrongly accused is very far behind. And I personally have several close males that I know for pure fact they might have said inappropriate things in a text message, you know, swearing. However, like that, te those text messages were always reciprocated. And even so, it's like, how can a woman, it, it, this absolutely infuriates me, so my words might get muddled because I get super passionate about it, but how can you as a human being and as a woman to the to the parent of your children wrongly accuse them for physically hurting you, utilising resources that are available for you, but for the women that actually deserve and need them and aren't being heard because you're taking up that space because you're jealous or you're sad or you're angry, it's the most disgusting disgusting part of the like behavior in a human being that I personally find and I just hate how many men are then going through the family court system going through the you know police investigations and things and just having to cop it on the wrist and say okay I'll cop I'll cop the ABO because I can't afford to fight it or what's the point in fighting it yeah well that's a big problem um that apparently the stats are that 75% of men that commit suicide have been through family courts or have been through some sort of custody issue. Um, yeah, the, the court system is massively out of balance um, towards um, favouring women. And oh, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, there's, you know, the, the men that are out there that have gone and done what they've done, um, which have created the scenario that yeah. it's gotten to absolutely um and in saying that too the media bias that that coverage gets compared to when a woman um does the same thing to a man <clears throat> is massively out of balance as well um you know if you want to go down the conspiracy theory thing there's there's a whole reason for that um but in in saying that too you know like knowing what i know I've had to I've had to bring it back to like both my relationships with my kids and mothers ended ended extremely toxic. And how did I show up or how was I showing up or not showing up and how did I co-create those scenarios and how did they play out? Absolutely. So really to <clears throat> take it back to ownership and it's it's all um wounding or play, trauma playing out um in people and the fact that majority of people won't step forward own their behaviors and get the help that they need um and that's basically why i got to the point of where i got to and and when i found um you know mankind project and and men's circles i was at the point where i was so fucking over my life and the cycles that i was in um but it was just like whatever I'm doing isn't fucking working. So I've got to I've got to change. 
I've got to do something to change. Um, and I was already involved in a, in a, uh, like a program on Facebook, um, through Facebook, you know, like it was, the, uh, it's the guy's actually a really good mate of mine now. It was black dog, um, coaching and was supporting men through mental health, uh, mental health issues through fitness, um, and nutrition. So, you know, I came across that just before I separated with my son's mum. You know, I was, in, you know, back in the space of, you know, being in a dark space with the way the relationship was and, and so on and so forth. So I'd already started that. And then when I found, you know, our Mankind Project, you know, after I said, you know, looking into what programs are out there for men that have gone through domestic violence, um, uh, yeah, I basically committed to myself to show up every week to circle. Mm -hmm. uh, and made that commitment sort of to myself foremost and made the commitment that um, I'd do that for my kids, that I didn't want to keep showing up and keep showing, you know, my kids that what they'd experienced with the relationships and how they ended was a normal relationship. Um, I didn't want them to, you know, for me to model that behaviour to them as being normal. So, therefore, you know, they would play that out in their, in their future relationships. So, yeah, that's that's what got me, you know, heading down that road. Yeah. What I'm wondering what advice you would give to a woman listening who is really all, you know, becoming aware of her partner, her son, her brother, her father, any man in her life that is having some mental health issues. And, you know, we're saying there's a big thing going on at the moment where it's like, speak up, use your voice. Most men aren't going to speak up. They're not going to put a Facebook post up saying, I need help. It's like it's the people closest to us that are going to be able to pull it out of us. But sometimes people don't know what the next steps are so that we just think, hey, let's avoid it and let them deal with it in their own time. What advice would you give to those women listening and how they how can they help their loved ones? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's such a huge question. I mean, you know, you've got the old fable of you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink. And that's, it's, it's, it is such a big issue. Like you've got all the campaigns, campaigns out there, you know, it, it's, it's not weak to speak and, and all of these beyond blue and, you know, black dog, you know, uh, organization and all of these things. But in the end, it comes down to the, to the, to the individual. Um, and for me, um, you know, as I said, for me, I just got to the point where I was sick of the 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 cycles that were playing out in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I could have and quite easily have committed suicide years earlier. Um, so I'd been down that road and I'd been in the space of not reaching out and not asking for help and <clears throat> just trying to bury it or suppress it or, you know, mask it with drugs or alcohol or all of those things. Yeah. Um, but in the end, it got to the point where it's like, this is the second relationship that's ended that's involved kids for me. And I know within myself that if I don't change, nothing's going to change. If I don't take the the steps to do something different. And basically, as I said before, it was I was just sick of sick of my life and sick of the way things were playing out in relationships. And it's like, well, whatever I was doing isn't fucking working. So I've got to do something, you know, different, radically different. And um, as I said, by chance, I found, you know, Mankind Project and started sitting in circle. Uh, I remember the first, you know, few weeks of sitting in circle. Um, I couldn't even get through the check-in without turning into an absolute 
blubbering mess. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, that's just a matter of taking those steps. I mean, I guess for for relatives or partners and all that, the best thing that you can that I feel that you could do is, you know, maybe check out some people's posts on Facebook and share it with them, you know, or 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 just plant seeds, just start planting seeds, going, hey, this is going on. Maybe we check this out, or hey, you know, there's even a couple circle. You know, the the partner I've got now, we run couples. She runs couples circles, and I'm supporting her in that. Um, you know, if it's your partner, just go, hey, let's go check this out for tonight. You're probably going to get a shitload of resistance from the man initially, and but you just keep chipping away at it, keep chipping away at it, keep planting the seeds. Um, you know, as I said, keep maybe sharing some posts that you know you see other men doing. Um, yeah, I guess that's sort of really other than the fact of, you know, and I've had people, you know, women especially reach out for their, for their partners and for their sons, especially, you know, the fact that I'm coaching now and it's like, yeah, cool. I'm happy to work with them. Are they willing to work? Are they open to stepping in and doing the work? Because as realistically, my personal opinion, there's no point in working with someone that's just going to be resistant the whole way. It's like pulling teeth, as I'm sure, you know, you two know if you've you know been in the coaching scene. Mm. Um, they've got to be willing to open up and really own everything and and want to move forward. Um, but yeah, the best thing I guess you can do, or best bit of advice is just plant the seed. Um, you know get them on, to, you know, even podcasts, get them start listening to different sort of podcasts and, and things like that. I think um, I heard a really brilliant analogy and I think that kind of wraps like that up really well is if you were to think of like playing basketball, right? And we, as a person that desperately wants to help somebody, we are continuously throwing them the ball. We're continuously throwing them the ball so that they can shoot the hoop, Right. The thing is, it's not up to us to shoot the hoop. It's actually not on us at all to shoot the hoop. And if they, if we keep passing them the ball and they keep dropping it, we keep passing the ball and they drop it and they don't want to borrow it. No, I'm not coming. No, I'm not doing that. Why would I do that? We keep passing the ball. And if you get to the point where it's draining your energy and you're like, fuck, I actually, I can't keep showing up for this person and them never taking my advice, right? I think we've all been in that scenario. And that is that fucking continuously leading that horse to water and it never fucking drinking, never taking the shot is yeah. the conversation. It's being open and it's saying, look, I know you're not ready right now or I know you're not ready yet and I want you to know that I'm here and I'm ready when you're ready. Mm. So when you're ready, I don't care when it is, I will answer the phone. Like <clears throat> I will pass the fucking ball so that you can shoot the hoop. Like and I'm here to support you in that but I can't shoot these hoops for you. So when you're ready, you let me know and fucking game on. And yeah. I think that is so powerful and it's less of um, it's, I think as well, like even you can take this even to the micro moment when someone's having a hard time, right. And we desperately want to support them. And I think this is a huge thing that we're seeing or that I'm seeing definitely in my world come through right now is people wanting the resources to help people in those stuck positions. And I think if you're sitting with somebody and they're having a really difficult time, it's being mindful. And I know like all three of us are trained in linguistics, right? It's being mindful of the language that we're using. And I think automatically it's so easy for us to, for us to say like, oh, like take your time 
And that's exactly how we say it, right? And I know people are listening, but like quite often we raise our hand and it's no, 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 take your time, take your time. And then think about what your body language is doing. Think about what your words are doing. Think about the energy behind that. It's saying, sit in it alone. And when you're ready, then we'll talk about it. And I think something, a really fucking simple shift with language and body language, open up your fucking palm and say, go on, go on. And like, you feel the difference. Take your time. It's very much like I'm putting this wall up and you deal with your shit or go on. It's like, I'm here. I will witness you in this. Mm-hmm. Like I am willing to hold you in this and then we can move forward. And I think it's it's powerful little shifts like yeah, that. Yeah, the issue, <clears throat> I hear I hear what you're saying and, and totally agree. And I'll take it back to the analogy, what you just spoke of there. Um, in that instance, you're playing out the drama triangle. So you've got the rescuer, the perpetrator and the victim. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're sitting in the rescuer trying to rescue somebody who's a victim, it's only going to be a matter of time before you get drawn into that drama triangle. Somebody's going to be the perpetrator, the victim, somebody's going to rescue and you're going to bounce backwards and forwards. Um, if you look into the the drama triangle, the next three steps are the, the creator, the coach and the challenger. So when we can up level ourselves and not be drawn into the drama triangle we get to step into one of the other three the other three c's they call it mm-hmm. um and 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 lead from from that that space which is a healthier space so you know you, you really i guess in a healthy way putting the onus back on them mm-hmm. it's like okay do you, you want to keep traveling down this road are you happy uh, you know what is it that you want okay so what is it that you feel that you need to do to change the circumstances that you're in throw the answers back at you know throw the questions back at them and then go right you know the answers like you really do know the answers it's like what action now are you gonna are you gonna go and take to change the situation you're in I think it it's from the perspective of like we want to empower people and people want to feel yeah. empowered so if we are, like you say, playing into the drama triangle and jumping in as the rescuer, hmm. people don't get to feel empowered in that. It's not empowering to jump into someone's life and to make decisions for them. What's hmm. empowering is, like you said, giving them this self-trust that they already know what hmm. to do and like holding them through that process of, I can actually do this. Yeah, yeah. And supporting them to it, you know, like even some of the all any male client that I've had come through, I've... I've referred to or or offered them that they go sit in circle as well because it's a great supplement um, to to taking them through you know my eight week program mm-hmm. uh, and you know the results uh, have been great you know like I've had a young fella who was basically house ridden with anxiety he's and you know six degrees of separation his father was a gang member and been in and out of jail his whole life so you know his mum got onto me and, 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 um, yeah, connected me with him. Um, and by the eight weeks, by the end of the eight weeks, he was out starting his own business. He was boxing training, you know, in the fight club, looking to get into amateur fights, um, all those types of things. Um, and in saying that he was 100% committed. He was at the point where he said, I'm done with, being stuck in the house, like not being able to go outside without having an anxiety attack. 
you know, not being able to have his mum go away for the weekend without him dropping into a space of just complete, complete, um, you know, obliterating himself, you know, through anxiety and and feeling like he was going to die and having to call the paramedics because he thought he was having a heart attack. Like that's where he was at. And that's a big part of the problem is, you know, like you said before, Chris, is like, you know, getting the touch of the feather or, or the brick or the baseball bat, like, and understanding that's the sign to go, okay, <clears throat> this is where I'm at. What is it that I need to do to change? What can I do? Where can I go? Who can I speak to rather than waiting for the the truck? Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Mm, it's brilliant. And I think for those listening, I think a key, like a key kind of like umbrella term to like really wrap up everything that you've shared with us today, Duncan, is like the mess is so often your message, right? Like yeah. we go through our own individual journeys and we're so often at the end of it, like that's our message. Like it's, I'm a big believer that like it's all unfolding in divine timing, right? It's like, it's, perfect as it is and that doesn't mean don't take the radical responsibility or the action right however it's like what have you been through what are the learnings and the lessons and how can you then turn around and help your brothers and sisters up um and and through when they are ready as well to take those steps and I think it's just your story is so powerful and there's just yeah thank you so much for sharing it with us thank you no I appreciate it um and it's it's not over yet I've got a long way to go. So, yeah, yeah we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I've got meetings with people to, you know, move forward on implementing farm programs in youth detention and, and other programs for youth and, and other programs for uh, men in jail. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, so exciting. Thank you so much, Duncan. No, thank you. Appreciate it.